be fine. Um, this is the last lesson uh, through the Apostles' Creed. Um, I don't know what that means for Sundays for the college ministry. My class is going back to, to start over back in our room, but I don't know. I'm assuming you guys will take a couple of breaks off, a couple of weeks off. Um, so, we have now made it through the whole creed, less the last two lines, which is what we'll do tonight. So, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. And um, that's what we're going to tackle. Um, let me... Let me actually open up in prayer, and we'll get going. <clears throat> Father, we're grateful for the truths that you revealed about yourself and about us in your word. And we're grateful for your good and providential care of your church over the millennia and for your stewardship and guidance as the church put together statements like this that in very succinct and sometimes even poetic ways declares truth and we're grateful for an opportunity to to look at these statements and to go back to the source of that truth, the perfect source of that truth. I pray that this study over the last nine, ten weeks has grown us and has made much of you. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your bride and to, to study who you are and to, to grow closer to you. Help us tonight to, to speak truth. I pray that your spirit would press on our hearts the kind of hope these words are meant to instill. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here we are. Um, right down through it, we are at uh, the, the part where it's, we're confessing that I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting so, one of the things that, that um, I was listening to a podcast earlier today by uh, an interview with a guy named David Bentley Hart. He's got some very strange views on the Bible. Um, but he, one of the things that he said, and I think he was just dead on, is that the one inescapable fact about Christianity is that when it really developed, those people were alarmingly strange to their to those that were surrounding them. And he goes on to list all the various reasons. But one of them is, is the confession here. And so, you know the saying, the only two certainties in life are death and taxes. And Christianity says not so much on the first one. Not so much. But here's what I, what I like to do. And, and on Sunday when we had people at tables, we kind of were able to break up. But here, let's just kind of do it out loud, as a, a kind of a weird, maybe even morbid exercise, tell me, like, what would our lives look like? What would we change about our day-to-day -day or our general goings about if the resurrection were not true? If what much of the world believes that 
when you die, that's it. You had a great run, but that's it. And so between now and then, you kind of have to make the most of it. What would change about the great Holly's life? How would you live differently if the resurrection were, if you, if you firmly believed that it were not true? Okay. So what would that look like? That's, that's kind of the internal thoughts. Despair would be a little more present. I actually had on those lines, we had a young man on Sunday when I asked this question. He said he struggles with a lot of chronic illnesses. He actually said, I, I think I would have thought about suicide a lot more. And I think I wouldn't be surprised if I made that decision to do that. And that was, it was actually kind of shocking. I don't think anyone was ready for that, you know. I think, everyone, I think all the husbands and wives were trying not to say I would have a lot of affairs. But I think it was just kind of, oh, like your, your, life, your day-to-day life is so hard that you would consider being just kind of done with it if there's nothing beyond it. He said, weirdly enough, yeah. Because, you know, I, I, I was assuming that if the resurrection doesn't happen, I have to make the most of what I have. I kind of have to live it to the fullest. And he said, actually, I would pretty quickly come to what's the point and I thought that was fascinating how else would our lives look different if the we did not believe that the resurrection was a thing Yeah. Yeah. But but honestly, just if there's no resurrection, all we're doing is helping people kind of feel better through different parts of life. Which is which, what's crazy is there are actual uh, there are actual ministers in this town that that's what they're doing. They don't yeah. believe in a resurrection. It's just therapy. They basically believe they're just kind of helping people make life a little bit easier. Yeah. I mean, not even just ministers. How many people have sacrificed in their career or their housing situation or just their very location because they're, they've wanted to remain connected to a community that collectively believes in this very much? I've seen lots of people sacrifice. I mean, and if, it's, if this isn't true, if that community is all built on some sort of naive falsehood, Oh, what's to stop the rat race from just, I'm going to get everything I can and go out in flames. Hmm. I, um, on Sunday, we had another man say um, he struggled with self-control issues to varying degrees. And he said, 
I think that I would self-destruct as I, as I give in to every little whim. A guy who struggled with a number of addictions. He just said, whereas this other gentleman would inflict harm on himself to escape, he said, I would live, so, I would burn that candle so hot that I would just go down with, like, and I would take people out with me. And it was, it was fascinating. I don't know where, Yes. Um, that's I mean, that's when he first Corinthians fifteen. If there is no resurrection, eat, drink, and be merry. And I always positioning is I always took that as um, like hedonism, go crazy. Mm-hmm. It's a Epicurean uh, Epicurean quote or whatever. And then the one I was, remember reading and studying that actually like Epicureanism isn't about going crazy and partying. It's about living as comfortable comfortably as you can. Yeah. So the eat, drink, and marry is don't go out and get wasted. Yeah. Because then you're going to have a hangover in the morning. You're yeah. Wasted, that, that was one of your days that you had it. You wasted it being hungover. Don't go out and sleep with someone's wife because that guy might come and kill you. Yeah. Um, and so when I realized that, I realized sadly surprised how close my life looks to someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection anyway sometimes. Mm. Um, doing all the little things that make life as comfortable and as safe and yeah. as secure. Not, not risky. Yes, as possible, you know, and that was kind of yeah. a weird, weird feeling, you know. That is interesting, that the resurrection actually gives us the freedom to take it on the chin a little bit. Well, that passage is... is I mean, we're going to actually be in 1 Corinthians 15 quite a bit, but just to, so that we're all on the same page of what he's referencing. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 29 through, I'll stop in 34. Paul says, Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? This is a new Bible, so it's not the ESV, but it's very, very close. Um, if the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day, as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Um, and there he's actually quoting a passage out of Isaiah 22 that has a bit of a fatalistic tint to it. Uh, here we go. Let's just kind of make sure that things are as, as easy as possible right now. Now, here's, the, here's the, the why I think that question is interesting. Reverse engineer it. Well, then, if we believe the resurrection is true, how then should we live? And so, like, go backwards on what you said. That if there's no resurrection, how does Holly live? What is it going the other direction? If you're prone to hopelessness and despair, like how much hope does the fact that it actually is a thing and it actually will happen and there actually is power in it give us? Yeah, I think actually Drew is, is doing a little bit of the exercise himself when he's, he found out he's an Epicurean. <laughs> he, uh, it can be really helpful to just say, if Jesus did not die on the cross, fill in the blank, and then say, I wonder if my life actually looks like that. Am I living as if these things aren't true? Because what this, this creed is, is it's, it's a, it is a confessional statement. It's not just 
a, a document of, of some sort that's just of interesting facts. It is a, I confess these things. I, this is, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. It's that kind of confessional statement. And, and it's really helpful exercise to check ourselves to see, am I living as if I believe these things? Because believe, in, at least in the New Testament sense, is, is a whole lot more of an action than it is a thought. Like, I, don't, I, I believe the sky is blue. That's not really the New Testament sense of belief. It's like, I believe in gravity, and that's why I'm a little nervous going over bridges. It's kind of that visceral belief. Now, I love, okay, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Then if I were to ask, okay, what are the implications of believing such things? And then we run through all the natural things. It means he owns everything and he has a right to uh, order things the way that he pleases and that he is good and that he makes beautiful things and he cares about even the smallest little mice and fields. And then I start to say, okay, but like in my life, I'm kind of a control freak. And I don't trust that God is all that good. I trust that I have to make it happen. I realize I'm actually living in a way that says more along the lines of, I don't believe in, I, maybe I believe in God the Father, maybe not Almighty. Creator of heaven and earth, but doesn't care about it anymore. Sometimes if we just look at the implications of these and ask, does that uh, align with my life at all? We can check ourselves to see if, if actions actually support these beliefs. And the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting are two important, um, actually they have incredible ramifications for how we live. So, contrary to the only two certainties in life um, are death and taxes, the Christian would say, actually death has been defeated. And it's very similar to, um, to like D-Day, World War II. It's, it's, it's not necessarily dead yet, it seems. Sin still does its thing, our bodies still decay, and things are uh, still unordered and, or disordered as to how they should be in many ways. But, so it's not necessarily dead, but it is bleeding out, and if we can continue to use like the... At D-Day, World War II was effectively won, and the rest of it had to play out. So, we, in saying this, the resurrection of the body, we are declaring that death has been defeated, it has been conquered, and our faith is, is hope that rests on that fact. On that fact. Um, so, to answer the first question on the back of your page, this is how I want to do this. Um, I actually want to write, what are we confessing? I want to write like a, a sentence for us, and then I want to diagram the sentence where we get those particular ideas. So, this is what we are confessing. In a nutshell, we are confessing with these last two lines that we will be resurrected with a perfectly recreated body. And you're going to notice some strange ways of saying things. That's because I think that there's some nuance that's important. A perfectly recreated body and a perfectly sanctified soul like 
that of Jesus himself. And we will live forever in perfect joy in the presence of Jesus in the new heavens and new earth. That's what I think this, these last two lines are confessing. That we will be resurrected with a perfectly recreated body and a perfectly sanctified soul, like that of Jesus himself, a very important qualifier, and live forever in perfect joy in the presence of Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. When we get to the last two lines of the Apostles' Creed, that's what we're saying. So, let's start with the new body. That does not work. We'll go blue all throughout. Let's start with the new body. Um, this is not our old bodies somehow like refined or put back together. Um, these are new bodies fit for for new people. And so, going on in First Corinthians. We just preached this a few weeks ago. Actually, last week. Um, this is what Paul says in verse 35, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool, he says, What, the, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, and perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, and it goes on and on. But I really want you to see that, that picture that he paints. Starting from seed to the new resurrected body. So like the imagery... You look at a seed, of pick your, pick your, you look at an acorn. You cannot for any, like, you just can't fathom what this will look like. I've, I've listened to so many sermons about this stuff lately, getting, uh, as we're getting ready for this. I cannot remember if it was Jim or somebody else that said this. So, if it was Jim, you'll recognize it. If not, we'll just assume that the so-and-so got credit. But, if you were to look at an acorn and ask what this will grow into, your best bet is a bigger acorn. Right? But that's not the case, of course. It grows into an actual tree. what, What I think Paul is getting at is that we have no framework for understanding the splendor of the resurrected body. It is not just going to be Ryan's... I think that I'll be recognizable. I do think that. Like I think I'm going to run into you guys in heaven and be like, hey, I don't think I have to introduce myself. But... It's not just this body with, with no more white hairs and with, and with no more illnesses and with no more aches and pains and, and none of that. It's not just this put into like it's perfected or right off the assembly line state. It's something new. And Paul doesn't really clarify any more than that. It's just, he says, it's the difference between a seed and a tree. 
And other ways to think through that is like asking someone who can only see in black and white to tell us what color will be like. They, have, they don't even have the language for it. They don't have, ask someone who lives in 2D to explain three dimensions. They don't have a framework for it in any way. And there's just, there's something about this passage that I like not being able to explain. Um... There were a number of people on Sunday that had chronic illnesses, and so I'm, I was very aware of how they're going to be reading this. And I just thought, it's, this is such... This passage and others that speak about the resurrection is so hopeful for a world that is breaking down and falling apart. The resurrection is not, hey, well, good news, Max Johnson. Like, in heaven, you're not going to have you're not going to have diabetes or Crohn's. It's, like, I think that he would like that. I think he would like that news well enough. But I actually like being able to say to him, "Yeah, you're. We're not just going to go back to twelve or thirteen year old Max, where for all intents and purposes you were actually just a healthy young boy. No, we're not going there. It's going to be greater than you can even imagine." And the, the, the truth is, I, I meet a lot of Christians that I don't think that they stop believing in the resurrection, but despair is always a little bit around the corner for whatever it is that they're dealing with. Whether that's the loss of a loved one or pain and suffering and in their own life or difficult families and what have you. Or I mean, quite frankly, one I'm seeing a lot now is loneliness. Very hard things for Christians and when I just tell them that not only bodily, but in every sense, socially and, and occupationally, I think that there's, going, there's no reason to believe that we're not going to have jobs in heaven and have like a normal economy of some sort. Like in every respect, it will just be, it's like the difference between a seed and a tree. I love not being able to explain it much further than that. And just say, this is one of those mysteries that, that can we hold on to it and just, Embrace the hope that Paul offers in passages like this. He says in verse 40, There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of earthly ones. Your translations might say spiritual bodies and earthly bodies. Now what, what Paul is not saying, there is no sense that he's saying that there's like a, a non-physical version of a body. He's just saying like a body of a higher state. He says there's some splendor there that we don't yet detect. Verse 41, there is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body where uh, there is also a spiritual body, so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So this is a, a fully recreated body. Out of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, it's not just the body, however. 
a prominent idea that I believe this, this creed, a lot of confessional statements are polemics against something. They, they're looking at um, the religious or cultural ideas of the day, and they are saying something for something and probably something against something. I don't know if you're aware of the recent statements that have come out in the last couple of years, the Nashville Statement on Biblical Sexuality. It is, it is a, a ecumenical statement of mostly American um, church leaders making a definitive stance on what biblical sexuality is. And then there was a, a uh, responding statement called the Boston Statement that basically affirmed the other side of it. But all of it is, you know, a thousand years from now when we dig up the United States, right? We're going to find all sorts of interesting things. But when they find the Nashville Statement, they might not understand, you know, or they, they might at first blush say, well, they really just thought about sex a lot, didn't they? They had to actually write a whole document on what the Bible says about it. But no, their historians will say, well, here's the deal. Like in the, in the latter half of the 20th century, there was this thing called the sexual revolution. And then in the first half of the 21st century, churches and governments and everything, I mean, it was a slugfest. And it seemed like the only thing we could talk about for 40, 50 years was sex. And then marijuana came along and we had a new thing to argue about. That's kind of like the historians will tell them. So that's the context of the Nashville Statement. That's the context of the Boston Statement. The context of this one is that there, are, there is an a overwhelming, um, overwhelmingly prevalent system of thought that um, glorified the soul, specifically the spiritual side of a human being, and vilified the, the, the flesh, the physical side of a human being. Some of it can be found in Platonic dualism. Stoics can, can take a little bit of a... Yeah, the, the, the flesh is bad, and what happens to my flesh is just worldly, it's carnal. The only thing that's worth really tending to is like the purity of my soul and of my mind even. And this gives dignity to the flesh when churches start to confess this, when believers start to, in order to be admitted into the church, this was really, a, uh, I think, a, a pledge of allegiance for a baptismal ceremony. I believe that that was in one of our introductory lessons that Drew taught. This is, in terms of ancient baptismal ceremonies, this was kind of your, I swear, allegiance to, to the church, or really to Jesus and, and his, his holy Catholic church. Um, but to say this, these last two lines was to go against, I don't know if I'm willing to say the predominant way of thinking, but a very prominent one, nevertheless, that... Um, you have this creep into the church in a, a, a heretical sect known as Gnosticism. And, and really, sometimes it's, it, it bears itself out in asceticism, denying your body any pleasures whatsoever. Your body's just kind of a worthless bag of bones that I'm just waiting to escape. And then there's the other side that just, because this body is a worthless bag of bones, I can do whatever I want with it and kind of goes towards the, the really rampant hedonism route. But this, one, this creed argues against both and says, um, yeah, the, the resurrection is, of course, a spiritual thing, but it's the resurrection of the body. It's a, it is likewise a, a physical thing. So the, there's a wrong view of matter to say 
that the body itself is bad or doesn't resurrect because um, God created the physical world. He deemed it good. Um, he made it beautiful. And He ordered it. It's not a chaotic place. I mean, what is chaos is, I, I think, attributable to sin alone. But God does not have any... Well, the, the, the unseen realm is greater than, the, than the, the realm that can be seen. It's, I don't know how we split them apart. But the, the big nail in the coffin for me is that God Himself took on physical flesh. Which just tells me something about His opinion of the physical world. So we can't have an inappropriate view of matter and hold to the resurrection of the body. There's also an inappropriate view of man that says... You know, the soul is inherently immortal. And my body will die, but, you know, my soul will live on. As if my body is some, like, sin-riddled tomb that I just have to suffer along the way, but deep down I'm a really virtuous soul. I think we would, anyone we encounter, we'd be like, I don't know if I've met the virtuous soul yet. But there is this, this delusional belief that this will all waste away, but my, the, the pure essence of Ryan, the soul, will live on. And then every one of you would be well within your reason to say, what is so good about your soul that it gets to keep living? And for that matter, I actually, because of just like a, a bit of a philosophical way of looking at it, but also a systematic, um, a systematic theological way of looking at it, I don't think souls are inherently immortal at all. They're created things. There is only one eternal, immortal thing, and that is God Himself. And so I think that our souls continue living at His will. Like we, I think sometimes we, we can accidentally take on a little bit of a uh, deified perspective of ourselves, as if Kay is just, you know, she's human here. But when she dies, she becomes some sort of divine spirit that carries on forever. It's like, I don't know why we would, how we get there. Everything about us is contingent on, on God's will to allow us to continue living. Now, I was, I was um, at school a few months ago. had a fascinating conversation with a visiting professor from another seminary who I was shocked. He's, he's a professor from a seminary up in Massachusetts called Gordon-Conwell. Very... I don't know if I'd call it prestigious. I think it's prestigious. Um, but it's a very conservative, very rigorous seminary. Very, very good school. And he was explaining to me why he is what's known as an annihilationist. Why he believes that, that if you don't confess Jesus and hell is your, is your judge, is what God judges you to be on the way toward, he says, you, you're, you're just destroyed. And I thought that was bizarre. But I kept that, I still don't agree with him. But his reasoning wasn't as bad as I thought because he said, why would he, like, if, if God's complete removal of his grace, what does that look like? I said, it looks like eternal punishment. He said, actually, I think it looks like your soul can't even keep living. Again, I'm not willing to go with him there. I think that there's, too much of just literally Jesus' words that make that complicated. But it was the first time I thought through, well, my soul is a contingent thing. It exists because God wills it to exist. I guess it could stop existing should He will that. 
And I wonder if he completely takes away all of his mercy and all of his grace, does that mean that so-and-so ceases to exist? It was very thought-provoking. Again, I'm not trying to like create annihilationists in here. I don't, I'm not one of them. But it was, I, was, I was shocked by his logic. Anyway, just a little bit of a aside. <laughs> um, 1 Corinthians 50, or, or 15, it really, you can see that even in the back half of what we've just read, it's weaving together the spiritual and the physical rather, um, rather seamlessly that I don't know how it gets separated. And, and that's, not even, that, that's not even the most saturated spiritual and physical passage. There's some really interesting sections in the book of Romans that, that deal with this particular topic. But I just, I don't see how this can be separated from this. And I don't know any Christians that are really making that statement. But again, it's nice to know what the creed's arguing against. Um, now this is the one that just makes me so happy. So not only is it going, to, not only will I have a resurrected body and a sanctified soul, but it's not going to be like the new and improved Ryan 2.0. Like, it's going to be like Jesus. Like Jesus. So, turn to Philippians 3. The Philippians 3. Cassie, would you mind reading verses um, 18 through 21 of Philippians 3? 18 through 21? Yes, please. It's just fascinating to me. He will transform the body. So my translation reads it a little differently, but same idea. Transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body. So, again, going back and kind of thinking through how that plays out and its implications. Like, does being made into a... Someone that's exactly like Jesus sound appealing. And in a room full of Christians, we know the answer has to be yes. Okay, but let me, let me ask some diagnostic questions. Um, so many of us find, no one in this room, but weaker Christians outside of this room, find their whole identity in gratifying physical urges. There's the simple ones. There's, there's sex or gluttony or addiction of some sort. But then there's other ones. There's um, sleep. There's the love of exercise. There is, a, there is a, a, a tie to some sort of physical urge that were we not, be, were we not able to satisfy it, could, if we couldn't scratch that itch, we might view 
the, the day-to-day goings-on of our life as um, a frustrating experience. If we were deprived of our abilities to satiate our appetites. I don't think anyone in here is an addict of any sort. But we have things we like. And if we were to go into some season where a greater degree of denial were asked of us, if, like, if I can't have the things that I like, I, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for spicy food. I could just eat things that burn normal people's faces off all day long. And if I had to go to like a saltless, pepperless diet for any season of time, that sounds terrible. That's, I, I, would, I would actually be in like a bad mood about it. Um, there is no indication in the, the four theological biographies we have of him called the Gospels that Jesus was a slave to any appetite. Even the good ones. Very disciplined to get up and pray when necessary. Wasn't to be controlled by any creative thing. And so it's interesting to ask, if, would, a life, would, a, would a life inside of a body, doing the things that Jesus does, thinking the way Jesus thought, would it be kind of dull? And I think some of us would say, yeah. I don't know. I kind of like that I'm, I like the proximity I have to Jesus. I don't know if I want to do things the way that Jesus did them. There's a, there's a, a constant, an ever-present recognition that there's something outside of himself that he's paying attention to, that he's caring for, that he's tending to, that he's, he's doing on the Father's behalf, people he's serving. I don't know. That's a hard lifestyle to ask people to, to A, do in this lifetime, and then B, be excited about the trajectory that we have, apparently, towards going to have glorified bodies like that of Jesus. But if we go back to, the, to 1 Corinthians 15, or just think back to 1 Corinthians 15, if there's anything about being exactly like Jesus that sounds dull, just, just tell yourself, that is me thinking like a seed, that a tree sounds boring. That is me thinking that in my black and white world, that the color red sounds stupid. That is, that is the, the finite part of me that just doesn't understand what eternity would be like. To, to ever understandably but wrongly believe that heaven's going to be dull. We're just seeds speculating on how fun it is to be a tree. <laughs> and I, I don't know that I need God to, to convince me by telling me what things are going to be like, so much as I, I think I need to move towards a, a posture of trusting Him that He, when He transforms me into this likeness of Jesus, that it's going to be spectacular. And, and I am 
I hope that I don't get too carried away with this, but I am growing constantly okay more and more with just coming up to the edge and saying, I don't know if I can say any more about it. Being like Jesus in body and soul. I mean, I think it sounds pretty fun now, but again, I can't really tell you why. I'm just I'm trusting that it will be. And then it tells us in, that we're going to go on towards the life everlasting. So our question then is, what is heaven? So here, we have the new heavens and the new earth. If I were to just tell you, like, like that's a common phrase in the New Testament, really, this is sky, dirt. It's all it means. And it's just talking about God is going to recreate everything up there to down here. Heaven isn't some far off place, it's going to be here. But, this is not the best descriptor of heaven. This is. The very presence of Jesus. With that in mind, listen as I read Revelation 21. A couple verses. Um, This is Revelation 21. I'm just going to read a, a little bit of the first half of this chapter and then I would encourage you to read all 21 and 22 and tell me where heaven is or what it is. The Apostle John says this, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with him with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And then it gives a list of everyone who's not going to make the cut. But the important, like the, the part I want to draw our attention to is that it doesn't describe like the splendor of some city where there is no pain. It doesn't describe the riches of some place that's got golden roads. That stuff's in there later on. But the the key characteristics of this heavens and earth is God is with His people. That's the key characteristic. Um, It is, heaven is living eternally in the presence of Jesus. How many of you, has anybody ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Interesting, interesting book about, yeah, parts of it. And I've only probably ever, I've read more parts of it. But I read through it once and it was fascinating. Now here is a, a quote towards the end of the book um, from a, a character known as Mr. Standfast. He says this, he says, I have formerly lived by hearsay and faith, but now I go where I shall live by sight and shall be with him in whose company I delight myself. For him, heaven wasn't a place, it was a person. 
And the first time that I, I, I started to put these pieces together was three or four years ago when I was teaching through the Gospel of John. And we can specifically look at this um, from the seven I am statements, although there are other places that are helpful. But um, these are the I am statements. John 6, I am the bread of life. John 8, I am the light of the world. John 10, back to back, I am the gate or the door for the sheep, or I am the good shepherd. Those two are right there in the same chapter. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then John 15, I am the true vine. Those are the seven famous I am statements made by Jesus in John's Gospel. Now, the reason I I draw our attention to this is because a a number of years ago, I was was filling in for Jim on his Tuesday morning Bible study, and the the particular topic was Lazarus' resurrection, John 11. And... uh, and I, I was trying to come, like, sort through how do I want to deal with this, both the, the apparent resurrection, or maybe it's a resuscitation, because Lazarus, of course, went on to die again, and, and the statement that Jesus makes about himself, that he is the resurrection and the life, and I, it just dawned on me, and, and so I go in the class, and my, my hook, to get everybody kind of alarmed, but now willing to listen to what I have to say, was... Uh, Nancy had finished teaching, and I went up there and I said, "Okay, today I'm going to be I'm going to talk about some theology, some theological application we can get out of John 11." And my opening statement was, "I do not believe salvation is a gift." Now, saying that as probably a newly acquired minister on the team, everyone's a little worried. Okay, did we hire this heretic? But I told him, here's what I mean when I, do, I say, and I still believe, salvation is not a gift in the sense that it's not anything that you or I can possess. It's not something that is given to me and I hang on to it. It's a person. It's a person. Jesus doesn't offer resurrection and life. He is resurrection and life. He doesn't offer bread in John 6 that can nourish. He is that bread. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the vine to which everyone must attach. He, nothing that's good about Him is available apart from Him. And, and, and so that's why this presence thing is such a critical idea. I, I have people ask me more often than I, than I care to, to actually answer, okay, so my, my grandson or my sister or whoever, they're having a really, they're in rough shape spiritually. You know, they, they used to follow Jesus. They, they made a confession at one point, and they were even rather faithful to Him. But it's been years since they've darkened a church door. And they're not asking me to go help that person. I would love that. They're usually asking if I will give them some measure of hope or assurance that they're okay. They're worried about their loved one. And rightfully so. And they want me to tell them, you know, God is just so merciful. He is just so good. And rather than asking, well, did they make a, like a clear confession? Was the baptism good? Did they go all the way under? Like, I don't even want to play the game. I just asked them, do they live a life with Jesus? And if the answer is no, I can't in any integrity give them some hope. Now, I, I'm, that'd be sweet if I was wrong. But it's not my place to pump people up with false hope. And I don't think that the things that they signed up for... Life, resurrection, 
I don't think those things are available apart from Him. So it, it seems to me that to, if these things are indicative of, of what it looks like to enter into the resurrected life in glory and splendor with a body like that of Jesus, it's, it's a, as a result of living a life with Jesus, and that just continues through eternity as living in His presence. So what is heaven? It's life lived in the presence of Jesus, but it will have unceasing joy. So this you could just say the seven I am's. Um, this is Philippians 3. Sorry, I wasn't putting the reference. Perfect joy. Um, if Anthony were here, I'd ask him to sing me the last verse of Amazing Grace. Um, but you know the you know the song. It's and when we've been there ten thousand years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've just begun. There is this endless bliss to it. I actually think that's where people get hung up and think about it being boring. I can't imagine doing anything for the next ten years, much less ten thousand years. I don't know what I'm going to do over the next ten days. Seeds imagining what trees are like. But, what is God going to put back together such that our joy will be all-encompassing? Um, I, as far as I could kind of sort through it, I could boil it down to four categories. What endless, perfect joy would be like. One, it would be perfectly enjoying God Himself. I don't do that perfectly right now, but it is something that I think eternity will be full of. Perfectly enjoying Him self. Two, I think it will be perfectly enjoying each other. Perfect communion with one another. Three, I think it's going to be an eternity of perfectly enjoying creation. I don't, we're not going to clouds, but I do expect a, an eternity of space exploration. So since um, I always laugh, you know, in, in terms of uh, Eternity, pastors, doctors, and lawyers will be suddenly unemployed. We'll have really no reason to do anything. Um, so I hope to get signed on with some sort of space program and spend the next million years seeing what God has made and glorying in Him that way. I just think that like, we'll be able to perfectly enjoy creation. And I think, finally, like in a similar vein, we'll perfectly enjoy a beautiful, beautiful integration of work, and rest and recreation. I think we'll enjoy God. I think we'll enjoy each other. I think we'll enjoy everything He's made. And I think we'll enjoy working and playing. And, and the more I think about what that's going to be like in eternity, the more I realize that as redeemed believers, we have an unusual capacity to do all of those things now. There's something that happened in our baptism that freed us to truly enjoy God and love Him, that freed us to truly enjoy one another. That's the baptismal waters create a new family in that sense. It frees me to appreciate the splendor of the Rocky Mountains in a way that, you know, Joe Pagan can't. And it frees me to look at my occupation as a life devoted to the service of the Father and, as, and to look at rest as, as not necessarily laziness, but just trust in the sovereignty of the Creator. 
and to look at play and recreation as something beautiful and that God delights in us enjoying things. Unceasing joy. Um, good passage. We don't really have time to read it. Would be Isaiah 25. It says some pretty interesting things about the joy to come. Um, not to mention Isaiah um, 65. In the first half of 66, Isaiah ends on a really dark note, but the first half of 66 is really good. Um, the last line of the creed is Amen. Amen in the Greek. And I've always just kind of assumed that its, its meaning um, was, let it be so. I went and looked last week, and Amen is not even a Greek word. They borrowed it from Hebrew. They just stole it. And in so doing, they pulled all of its Hebrew meaning over. And so I went and looked in my dictionaries. And so here's the entry. And, and just tell me, like I, this, this messes with me a little bit. So Amen is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Aman, which is basically saying they didn't even mess with it. They just said, okay, if it's in Hebrew... Just, okay, well, we have an A, and we have an M, and we have an E, and we have an N. Just put it in Greek and say it in a Greek way, with a Greek accent. But it's not a Greek word. It's a transliteration of the Hebrew word aman, which means, and this blew my mind, to show oneself dependable, to know oneself to be secure, and to have faith. So this tells me that amen has something to do with the one who's saying it. So when we say amen at this, I wonder if it's, if we're, we're appealing to our own integrity and our ability to say such a creed. But I think back to all the times that Jesus says, and the word is amen, but how much he says just truly, truly, I say to you, and then he just drops the mic. And what he's doing when he says, Amen, Amen, I say to you, he is basing what follows on his character. And I realized that means the world of, that, that means a world of difference when I pray and I say, In Jesus' name, Amen. It's whatever I have asked for, whatever I have thanked God for, whatever I have prayed for or praised Him for or lamented to Him, I'm doing so as a someone born in the image of God, fallen in the likeness of Adam, at my baptism, recreated in the image of Jesus to be one day perfectly like Jesus Himself in both body and soul. I am saying that what I am praying to the Father is in line with the character of Jesus. In Jesus' name, Amen. So, when I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, Amen. So, in, incredible implications that come out of these last two lines in conclusion here. Because we believe these things are true, 
We grieve differently. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4 puts it this way. Everybody laughed at me on Sunday. I just got this Bible, and I know that this is not news to anybody. But this is my first interaction with the tabbed Bible, and it is so nice. I just, I just have to tell you, it's like telling you, hey, have you guys tried water? It's awesome. Um, but this is so nice. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13, says this. That's Colossians 4. No wonder. The Apostle Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, euphemism for having died, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or died. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord, we who are still alive will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Um, and he explains kind of how that's going to happen. And then at the very end of that paragraph, therefore, encourage one another with these words. We think about the, the death that every single person on this planet at some point experiences very differently. And we also hope differently. I'll just, I, I got to read I, this little bit out of Isaiah 25. We hope differently. Isaiah says it this way. Speaking on behalf of the Lord, Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. Listen to this party that's described. This is the future salvation that is coming in Isaiah's prophecies. He says, On this mountain, the Lord of armies, or some Bibles will say the Lord of hosts, will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he will destroy the burial shroud, kill death, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. On that day it will be said, Look, this is our God. We have waited for Him, and He has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in this salvation. So, because we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, we grieve differently and we hope and celebrate differently. And that's the creed. That is the creed. I've kept you guys five minutes longer than I intended, so my apologies. But you are free to go. I appreciate your, your time this summer. And uh, like I said, we'll be kicking things off at the church. Um, really, the 19th at the church is kind of when all of everything roars back up full speed ahead. When does, uh, for your people here, when's the table start? So coming up. Coming up, which means Thursday night movie night with Dad is about to re-enter as Rachel is. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate you guys this uh, your patience this summer and, and attention. So have a safe drive home. But if it's not safe, you're good.
Sunday when he talked about talking to Heidi May about, oh, we yeah. get out of here like, that's good. <laughs>